Chapter Thirty, Part One of Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume Two, by Moncure Conway chapter thirty part one when at the close of eighteen sixty three the committee of south place chapel had urged a permanent settlement we agreed to remain for six months the ladies of concord and boston had appointed mrs conway to collect contributions in england in aid of the colored freedmen while she was successfully occupied with that work and i was writing articles for english and american papers we felt that we were serving our country as well as if residing in it i had been preaching at south place pretty regularly for five months before my regular ministry began february eighteen sixty four the society had originated under the american apostle of universalism elhanan winchester during the french revolution which he interpreted by the book of revelation and the society now passed to another american who had come over to interpret the new revolution in america during its threescore years and ten the society had passed from winchester's rudimentary universalism through phases of faith leading to the humanized theism of w j fox in rewriting my old discourses i discovered how conservative my theology had been in cincinnati even when the seceders went off to found their church of the redeemer at south place the old sacramental vessels were preserved only as relics the communion table was used only for the flowers set there every sunday one relic the fine gown worn even by w j fox i was the first to discard there was a pleasant vestry in which was always placed a decanter of port or sherry for the preacher's refreshment the high pepper-box pulpit and the straight-backed pews remained until eighteen seventy six when the whole interior was renovated it is a building of excellent acoustical qualities with deep galleries and can seat nearly a thousand the congregation contained no working men so called and the few artisans in it were persons of fair education the members were mostly middle-class people of literary tastes and trained in families whose vital religion was the new reformation this reformation of varied phases some elusive while those affecting freedom of thought steadily prevailed had been fruitful in individual characters i was the pastor of the veteran radicals even when they were too infirm to attend the chapel james watson whose memory extended to the prosecutions of thomas paine and his friends and who had himself been in prison for selling paine's works was a serene man of such clear mind that i could hardly realize his age william lovett the old chartist who wrote several useful books on sociological and educational subjects was a charming old radical to talk with 
i conducted the funerals of watson and lovett and cherished the souvenirs sent me by their families a large engraving of romney's pain and a portrait of madame Derismont, fanny wright london was a different city in those days from what it had become only twenty years later in eighteen sixty four the soho region was still phenomenal for villainy it was something to be seen and i remember passing through the besotted streets under guard of a policeman but fifteen years later wentworth higginson who was visiting us related with sorrow the destructiveness of time on old institutions he had gone alone through the whole soho district but alas without having his pocket picked even of its half-visible handkerchief field lane where dickens located fagin's school for pocket-picking was in eighteen sixty four a place still suggestive of such dens an uninhabited old shanty was pointed out as the very house of fagin and i tried to make out the itinerary of oliver twist and the artful dodger the seven dials where sots drank their gin in rooms still retaining traces of a fashionable past was a place to avoid but the district of st george's in the east was a show-place of orgies it is near that region that swedenborg was buried in a pretty churchyard i have sometimes sat beside his tomb and watched the children seeking in that green garden asylum from the miserable scenes outside and wondered that the great mystic should have seen his first visions in the thick of london city a little farther amid the docks i saw a ritualist clergyman celebrating on good friday the stations of the cross a small procession of his congregation st peter's followed the draped cross and at its several stations paused to sing hymns but an english rector in monkish dress and the intoned ceremonies enraged the crowds which jeered at the ritualists across the thames i found and entered the old tabard inn from whose yard the pilgrims used to start for canterbury on it there was a bit of some carven figure out of which the imagination might restore the head of either a horse or a pilgrim the gallows still had its place outside the grim old bailey prison on what was i believe the last public execution that of the men of manila concerned in the flowery land murders i went out in the early morning to observe the crowd but intending to avoid the spectacle of the law's imitation of the murderers but even then hours before the event every street and alley leading to the prison was crammed the crowd was brutal many of both sexes being already tipsy with some difficulty i reached a point near smithfield where the executions by fire and stake deemed civilized in their day supplied the right moral point of view for the scene of legal murder as i was surveying the mass of people the church bell began to toll the boisterous throng was smitten silent and far away i beheld the white-robed victims swinging in the air the men hung there from nine till noon 
during the first years of my ministry at south place the means of reaching it from camden town were inconvenient after i had reached the underground railway at portland road it only took me to farringdon street from that point i made my way on foot through smithfield then an open common smithfield long consecrated in my sentiment by the ashes of its martyrs became more sacred as the arena where the unchurched heretics and their opponents carried on their debates every sunday there were separate groups each surrounding its leader but generally they all amalgamated around the central combat between the atheists and the orthodox the whole thing was picturesque no ordinary pulpit eloquence could fascinate me so much as the vigorous unadorned argument of men whose freedom showed what fruit is born by wooden stakes quickened by fire and blood i was drawn into the smithfield conflict it appeared grievous that the atheists should be offered no alternative but the dogmas of their evangelical antagonists and one morning i advanced from the outskirts of the crowd and challenged the statement of the chief unbelieving orator bradlaugh my statement made in a friendly spirit from an unorthodox point of view and presenting a new kind of theism commanded respect from the heretics but vexed the orthodox afterwards i left home early on sundays to participate in the debate before going on to my chapel i derived help for my ministry from these open-air meetings i was feeling the pulses of london realizing what problems had been evolved by the conditions of that great world and gaining knowledge of the task before me i felt it as an affliction when the police began to make the outdoor disputants move on it was at once pathetic and comical when the more pertinacious of the speakers were occasionally seen walking backwards and gesticulating at their moving audience as if followed by a mob finally the huge meat market was built and the glorious liberties of smithfield became a memory not far from us in camden town lived the vigorous free thinker and reformer george jacob holyoke the last man imprisoned in england for atheism in my cincinnati dial november and december eighteen sixty i printed an article concerning him entitled sketch of a leading english atheist holyoke at fifty had apparently not suffered much by his six months imprisonment and his many editorial and lecturing labors he was rather boyish in appearance and his almost feminine voice in public speaking conveyed an impression of immortal youth the lady who wrote the sketch of holyoke published in my dial miss sophia dobson collett resided just opposite us in lansdowne terrace she was deformed but happy her refined countenance was full of intelligence and vivacity her culture both literary and musical was wonderful she had attended the concerts of mendelssohn in london knew the novellos and could identify every character in miss shepherd's famous charles ochester it was from her that i heard of miss shepherd's rumor never published in america in which figure 
beethoven rodamont disraeli diamid albany and louis napoleon porfirio miss collett had known emerson and heard all of his lectures in london in eighteen forty eight emerson remembered her and asked me about her although she wrote the sympathetic sketch of holyoke she did not share his opinions she had sat under the ministry of w j fox at south place had been intimate with eliza flower the composer of south place music and sarah flower adams its hymn writer and had herself written several hymns and tunes sung in the chapel she occasionally came to south place but had not passed with the congregation into its rationalistic phases of belief and her spirit had found its support in frederick denison maurice my wife formed a fast friendship with the sweet neighbor and was able to enliven her existence she had a strong desire to meet robert browning and thomas hughes and we secured them for a sunday evening dinner where she and browning had a talk concerning their old friends miss collett's brother c d collett editor of the diplomatic review had been the musical director of south place in the days of the sisters flower when its choir was regarded as the finest in london he retained this position for a time after my arrival increasing deafness caused him to resign but he kept a seat in the gallery near the choir and was there every sunday he always stopped to speak to me and one morning told me that he had not for a year been able to hear a word from the pulpit gradually the music too became inaudible to him but still he sat there his daughter beside him one morning when the blond and picturesque old gentleman did not appear i knew that his end must be near and so it proved i received a letter from horace greeley dated april seventeenth eighteen sixty four reproaching me sharply for not returning to join in the presidential campaign in it he said there was no year of our great trial which was not one of intense agony to me as to thousands beside who would gladly have been buried in the darkest corner of siberia only that we knew that would not do and we are still in the whirlpool with no assurance of a safe deliverance it is by no means certain that the copperheads will not choose the next president being enabled to choose him because many are in europe who should be here in the thickest of the fight this letter from one i held in high esteem troubled me i replied that i did not see how in america i could do more than i was doing i was writing to the tribune occasionally regularly to the commonwealth and the cincinnati gazette writing three or four letters every week bringing the views of eminent european friends of america and emancipation to bear on our situation that i was receiving assurances from phillips and others that my letters were doing good service that should i return the discussion of my mason correspondence might be revived to the detriment of our cause but that nevertheless if he thought otherwise and would guarantee me a place where i could write and speak freely i would return horace greeley returned no answer 
but i was engaged as the regular london correspondent of the tribune the cause in which i was interested was liberty i would not have advocated bloodshed even for emancipation though anxious since war had come that it should be the means of destroying slavery i would have considered the union apart from emancipation not worth one man's blood i was thus too different from other americans even from my anti-slavery colleagues to be directly useful in the republican campaign i had no faith that war could achieve any permanent benefit to white or black or to any nation while the president and the people recognized only the military method of pacification and emancipation there was thus no place for me in militant america london had cordially offered me what my native country had not a field for the exercise of the ministry for which my strange pilgrimage from slaveholding virginia and methodism to freedom and rationalism had trained me so despite horace greeley's reproach reason bade me stay where i was wanted for tasks to which i felt that i could bring some competency so it was that having gone to england for a few months i remained more than thirty years end of chapter thirty part one recording by lucretia b